This is the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. My guest today is Mariah Gladstone. She's Blackfeet and she's the creator of Indigi Kitchen, a neat little cooking show focusing on native ingredients. Before I get started, I want to let you know about a couple of things. One, I mentioned last year that episodes of this podcast would be released regularly on Thursdays. It hasn't worked out that way, but I still try to produce two episodes every month, even though that didn't work out well in February and March, but I'm still going to do my best to get back on track. What else have I been doing, though? Well, I bought a house in January. I immediately started tearing up the interior, thinking it would be easy to do some upgrades and paint everything. It's actually not that easy to repaint the walls, repaint all the cabinets, repaint all the doors, put new light fixtures in and make custom shelves. I have to thank my sister Alicia, my mom Kathy, and especially my dad Tim. Every weekend they're here in Albuquerque helping me build things and helping me paint things black. Yes, I actually do have black accents throughout my house. And two, I want to let you know about social media. You can follow Toasted Sister on Facebook. I frequently repost native food articles and videos there. Toasted Sister is also on Instagram. You'll see photos from the chefs. And in the future, you can see photos when I'm on the road meeting native chefs. But that's in the future. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Andy Murphy. And three, really quick, if you want to support this podcast, head on over to ToastedSisterPodcast.com. You can donate any amount or you can buy a cool Toasted Sister coffee cup there. This is a one-man operation here and your contributions go to production and web hosting costs. All right, now on to the episode. So my name is Mariah Gladstone, and I am Blackfeet from Montana. All right. Well, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, So I understand you're the creator of Kitchen. Is that right? Can you tell me about it? Yeah. um, Kitchen is an online cooking show, so very much made for social media shorts, that is dedicated to re-indigenizing our diets, and reteaching some of the information about traditional foods and traditional ingredients using digital media. All right. And I've seen a couple of the uh, videos so far. I know, I think the latest one that I watched was the um, butternut squash bison lasagna. Um, that one, yeah. that one looked pretty tasty. I mean, can you tell me how you go about putting these episodes together? I mean, do you have a camera person uh, hovering over you while you're, while you're cooking? I mean, what does it look like when you're filming an episode? Um, my film setup is pretty low budget, straight off the res. I have a jerry-rigged tripod that actually doesn't support the weight of my camera. So I have a headband <laughs> tied around it, winched with a screw, um, propped up with my heavy DSLR recording the videos. Uh, someday I have plans to get a better setup than that, but mm-hmm. right now it works. Um, so I record things that I'm doing um, just right in my kitchen. And then later I'll go back in, do the editing and do the captions. And uh, why why did you want to start uh, making videos um, in this way? So I think there's a lot of momentum in the Native community surrounding 
traditional foods and food sovereignty. But I think that in order to really connect that to the communities on the ground, um, you know, our people that are living in food deserts and experiencing this disconnect from our traditional foods, in large part due to the colonization of our diets and the systematic eradication of our foodways, there is a lack of information about how to prepare a lot of those foods. So in order to get the community and the grassroots population interested in food sovereignty and traditional foods again, we need to teach people that preparing things is easy and can be done in their own kitchen, is you know relatively cheap to do, get people interested in whether it's gardening or food co-ops in their community, things that help the food sovereignty movement and everyone that's working on the access problem um, really helps that thrive. So in order to kind of fill that missing link, I decided that I needed to get information to as many people as possible about how to cook something other than fry bread. Um, and that's why I thought, of course, you know, these little two-minute or less videos that show you how to prepare an easy, healthy dish using ingredients that our ancestors have been using for thousands of years. Really where the idea for Indigit Kitchen came from is kind of the missing link to the whole food sovereignty cycle that we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been uh, talking about that, uh, or actually me and, uh, you know, a couple of chefs uh, throughout this podcast have been talking about uh, teaching people how to cook. I mean, that is something that is sorely missing in some places where, yeah, you can have the the traditional food, um, you know, coming straight to the, to the fridge and to the pantry, but, you know, how actually are you going to uh, start cooking this um, for your family? I mean, uh, explain to me what are some of the consequences of that kind of lack of culinary knowledge for, you know, just the, the regular old Joe Indian at home? Yeah. Um, unfortunately for a lot of people, um, especially um, on the Blackfeet Reservation in my community, it translates to people, once it was access, now it's um, becoming more of a knowledge issue of just preparing, you know, vegetables that Native people have been eating for thousands of years um, and how to butcher meat. You know, there still, thankfully, is a large hunting tradition on the Blackfeet Reservation. But um, when it comes to things like green beans, you know, because of the generational gap, that we have of grandparents and parents being raised on rations and then commods. Um, there is this belief that green beans come out of a can and they're gross and squishy and they don't have flavor. And why would we want to eat those? Not relating them back to a traditional food of native peoples that are fresh and can be prepared in many different delicious ways. And so, you know, I, I don't need to recite the statistics the rates of obesity and malnutrition and diabetes and heart disease, you know, all of these diet-related health epidemics are plaguing Native communities in a very large way. It's due to the colonization of our diets and this shift to processed foods. Over the past couple hundred years, it's moving very rapidly in uh, evolutionary time from 
diets high in protein and fiber to diets high in fats and uh, simple carbohydrates. So, and, you know, we can see the consequences of that in the health of our Native communities. Right, right. And I want to get to uh, the the traditional diet of uh, the Blackfeet, but uh, before I want to ask you about uh, what was cooking like in your home personally? I mean, was uh, your your parents or were the adults in your house, you know, really good cooks? Or and, and how did you get to this point where you are uh, reconnecting with these traditional ingredients and you know making videos, teaching other people about this? I mean, how how did that happen for you? Yeah. So um, to answer your first question, growing up, I was very fortunate that both my parents cooked, um, although my dad was definitely more like in charge of breakfast and barbecue. So those were his things. Um, And my mom did most of the rest of the cooking, but she would always engage me in the kitchen. So even, you know, from the time I was two, three, four years old, I was helping her and In some ways, that meant, oh, we have four overripe bananas, and we're going to make banana bread, but the recipe only has calls for two, so we need to double the entire recipe. And then she'd put me in charge of writing down the entire doubled recipe, because apparently she was secretly teaching me fractions, which Mm. was great. (laughs) Now I have an engineering degree that I don't use, and I run a cooking show. So, (laughs) So it was lucky. I also, you know, I think I woke up when I was five years old, and I go, Mom, I had a dream. And she goes, well, what was your dream? I said, I dreamt of these cookies. And so she's like, okay, do you, what do you want to do about it? And she, I'm like, I'm going to make them. And so my mom generally let me run around experimenting in the kitchen. And, you know, I had the general concept of like what goes into cookies. And so I was putting flour and sugar and, you know, all of these cookie ingredients into things. And she wrote it down. And then later she made sure I always had a pen and paper and I still have recipes that came to me in dreams, um, you know, stashed away in a file cabinet because my mom just let me experiment with things, which is great because now I um, experiment with indigenous ingredients. Um, Part of that came from attending school in New York and being exposed to all of these different ethnic, um, scare quotes, cuisines um, from around the world. You know, of course, in New York, you can get Ethiopian food and Cuban food and Italian food, and you know, all these different things. But of course, there's no native restaurants in New York City. Starting to think about as a native community within, you know, at my college, well, where we were going to get our food catered from for our events, for one. But um what that identity meant in terms of cuisine, which was kind of interesting. Um, But thinking about, you know, where all these things come from and why Italian food has so many tomatoes in it and why um, there's so many chilies in East Asian cooking and things. I'm like, all these things came from the Americas and we can't even, you know, we don't even have a place where we can showcase the foods that came from here. Of course, coming back and contrasting that to living in a food desert during the summers on the Blackfeet Reservation and being 40 miles away from the nearest grocery store and recognizing the things that my ancestors have been eating and the things that were available right outside my door, um, despite being so far away from a grocery store. So 
you know, working on preparing those things and really learning a lot more about it. But it, it was living in New York that piqued my interest in indigenous cuisine in the first place. So tell me about traditional Blackfeet food. I, I understand there's uh, lots of uh, bison, right? So much bison in Blackfeet food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's estimated that Blackfeet diets are like 80 to 90 percent meat. And most of that was bison. So we were definitely a Plains people that relied heavily on bison for everything, not just food. I mean, you know, of course, our lodges and clothing and everything else. But mm-hmm. besides that, we, um, you know, we were hunter-gatherers. So we gathered berries, um, service berries, thimbleberries, different things, because um, we also, you know, lived next to the mountains, the eastern part of the Rocky Mountains, from present-day Alberta all the way into central Montana is all Blackfeet territory. Because of the Chinook winds, we lived there year-round. So um, we were able to eat not only the bison on the plains, but also the animals from the mountains. So bighorn sheep, mountain goats, deer, elk, moose, you know, so much meat. Uh, (laughs) But... To a limited extent, we also had some roots, camas, for sure. Right. Blackfeet cuisine was not super diverse. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, all I, the types of meat. Right, right. I've, I've been to uh, Montana, to the Blackfeet Reservation, and I've been to uh, Glacier National Park. I mean, that was like one of the you know, greatest experiences of my life was driving through uh, Glacier National Park about, I don't know, like 10 years ago. But I just thought, oh my gosh, these these natives who lived here, you know, who are still here, they're so lucky. There's so much grass. There's so many trees. I mean, look at all this. It's just so beautiful. Uh, because I come from a desert, um, yeah. live in the middle of the New Mexico desert. And, you know, growing up, you're like, God, it's so dry here. <laughs> It's just nothing but weeds. I mean, you know, I didn't grow up learning about the traditional foods in my area on the Navajo Nation. And then, you know, going up to Montana, I'm like, oh, my gosh, these these Blackfeet natives must be so lucky to live here. They, they must have had <laughs> deer and elk and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, I was just in awe <laughs> driving through the Glacier yeah. National Park there. But um, didn't see any bison because they were nearly wiped out. Um, how did the, you know quote, disappearance of, of bison affect the Blackfeet people, uh, Blackfeet people even today? Yeah. Um, you, you know, you talk about Glacier National Park, which um, the eastern half of the present day national park mm-hmm. was part of our original boundaries of our reservation. Part of the eradication of our primary food source was of course, you know, becoming uh, relying upon government rations like many tribes. Of course, when you rely on an entity for your food source, it is difficult to negotiate in any meaningful way with that entity. For the Blackfeet, um, after the bison had left us for a time, the issue was rations were not arriving on time. And part of that was negotiating with some people that really wanted to be able to 
take some pieces away from the reservation boundaries. They were sacred places for the Blackfeet, like the Sweetgrass Hills, uh, Chief Mountain, which is lies along the present border between the reservation and Glacier National Park. So places like these, which their goals were ranged from conservation efforts to potential mining in the area, but talks the government essentially into cutting off rations, forcing the Blackfeet to sign away these pieces of the reservation. Well, um, one quarter of the Blackfeet population died at that point just from starvation over one winter. After smallpox epidemics had already plagued the people, you know, signing away our sacred lands in order to get the money to purchase food for the children and for the future generations so that the Blackfeet people would continue to exist. I try to remember that sometimes, like, no, that we, you know, our, our futures, like, me as a young Blackfeet person, like my existence was paid for with our sacred lands. And I don't know if that's like an ego booster or a guilt trip or something, but um, it reminds me of the importance of food sovereignty and how it relates to, you know, our true governmental sovereignty as a nation. Pretty interesting to to think about that, um, how food was used to, you know, really, really control, really uh, devastate uh, tribal nations across the country. I mean, it's just, um, you know, learning about that now, it, it, it yeah, it makes you feel either proud or devastated, <laughs> you know, or, or you yeah. know, guilty about, um, you know, how you live your life today, how you just kind of exist and carry yourself today. I mean, uh, that that's kind of like the added pressure of of being a Native American, um, I guess what they called, you know, walking in two worlds sometimes as you carry that, um, yeah. for, you know, just know, knowing the history. So, um, yeah, I'm probably going to think about Glacier National Park a little bit differently now that I, I'm going to flip back to some of the pictures that I took from, from uh, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I wrote a blog post for a public lands group, mm-hmm. um, which was just titled, Glacier National Park was sold for food. In part to make non-natives think about, you know, the history about some of the public lands that we have and that, um, you know, they were, of course, taken and Mm -hmm. the cost to Indigenous people was great. Always things to think about and how food (laughs) relates to so much more than just what we're putting in our bodies. Yeah, definitely. And, and um, you know, definitely starting to think differently when I visit uh, national parks and just, you know, wild areas um, that, that, you know, were under the control of Native people. I mean, now that I've learned so much throughout, you know, my time, you know, going through Native studies, um, working in the job that I work at now, which, you know, all I do is just research Native topics and issues and, you know, de- definitely just makes you think differently about about everything else. Um, but, uh, you know, when I uh, became your friend on Facebook, um, I noticed you had a lot of, uh, like, aerial dance or aerial yoga uh, photos that you were sharing. Uh, can you tell me about that? I mean, that's that's so that's so cool. It's so fascinating to, to you know, look at you in the air <laughs> in that way. Yeah. Um, yes, I also perform with an acrobatic troupe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I teach, I think we're up to five aerial fitness classes a week. Um, so I'm doing different things. Um, for people that have no idea what I'm talking about, it's like Cirque du Soleil stuff. 
Um, so aerial silks, aerial hoop, um, things that are off the ground, um, because on the ground, I'm fairly clumsy. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, how did you get into that? You know, it's I think it was the classic entrance um, returning back home and realizing that we now had a pole dancing studio in town. So obviously I need to go take classes and become buff. I, <laughs> so, um, you mean yeah, a pole dancing class back on the Blackfeet Riz? Or where, um, where's home? Back across the mountains, across the mountains in Kalispell, Montana. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so not not on the res. Um, okay. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. In over in Kalispell, and of course, realizing oh, they have all these other classes too. Well, I'm just going to start them all at the same time, and um, <laughs> yeah, just take everything up rapidly, which is good. It's <laughs> fun. Been doing it for about two and a half years at this point. That was Mariah Gladstone. She's the creator of Indigi Kitchen, a cooking show dedicated to re-indigenizing native diets using digital media. The website is indigikitchen.com. That's I-N-D-I-G-I-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com. Indigi Kitchen is also on Facebook and YouTube. I'm Andy Murphy. was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. Check out his awesome blues music on Bandcamp and at cwion.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. <laughs>